Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our morning service. Good to have you folks here this morning. Nice to have some on Zoom. And uh, for next Sunday, just a reminder, next Sunday, service will begin at 10.30. We're glad to have Pastor Brad with us this weekend. I'm going to ask Pastor Brad to come now and lead us in prayer. Read the scripture and lead us in prayer, if you would, Pastor Brad. And welcome. All right. Our scripture this morning is uh, found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Luke, chapter 1. I'm going to read uh, the Song of Mary, first of all, uh, and then uh, the Song of Zacharias, who was the father of John the Baptist, uh, both of which are recorded in Luke, chapter 1. So first of all, uh, Luke, chapter 1, starting at verse 46 to verse 55. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things and hath sent the rich empty away. He hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And then over to verse 67. Luke 1, verse 67. And his father, that is John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Now, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. May the Lord help us to understand these scriptures that point us to the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation we know through him. Let's come before the Lord and pray together. Holy Father, we do want to thank you and praise you that you are the God who knows that we are dust. You know what we are by nature and you know what we have become because of our rebellion against you. Holy Father, you know the extent of our sinfulness and the horrifying consequences 
it is brought about. And we have come to know through your scriptures the serious predicament in which we find ourselves and the wrath of God that is rightly and justly being revealed from heaven against us. But Holy Father, we are astounded to read in your scripture the glories of your mercy and the wonder of your power, that you are the God who is able to save completely those who come to God by you. Holy Father, we come before you because you have made the way open. And we ask, Lord God, that each of us would understand the depth of our need, but the astonishing greatness of your grace. Help us, Lord God, if we know that grace, to praise you for it, to be filled with joy and gladness because it is unchanging and sure. Your promises stand forever. Help us, Lord God, to be able to share this with others. We thank you for this church and the beacon that it is in this neighborhood and has been over the decades. We pray, Lord God, that this zeal for the gospel would never abate, but the longing to share this good news with those who yet walk in darkness so that they might see the great light might continue. Oh Lord, our God, we pray that you would give strength to each one who leads and who serves, who teaches, who helps and strengthens. We ask, Lord God, that your name would be exalted in this place. We pray, Holy Father, that your word would always be open. These are things that we will never guess and we cannot find out from other sources. Lord, open your word to us. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit so that we might understand. Lord, our God, we thank you for the great encouragement that is here, encouragement that sustains us even when we pass through trial. And we know, Lord God, that there are many who are suffering all kinds of afflictions. Your word told us to expect that and not to be surprised. But you have also told us that our faith, when tried, comes forth as gold. And you, Lord God, will accomplish your holy purposes. So please stand by each one who is struggling and facing challenges of many kinds. We thank you uh, for Andrew and Cheryl and their family and the blessings that you are giving to them and pray that you would continue to give them strength and help along the way. We pray, Lord God, for others as well who are facing health challenges and, uh, and perhaps decisions connected to that. We pray that you might stand by them and give them much help and encouragement. We pray, Lord God, that you would continue to strengthen missionaries who are laboring in other places. Sometimes this can be a difficult time of year, separated from family and friends, but it can also be a profitable time of year. And we pray, Lord God, that there would be many opportunities for the sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ, the glories of his birth, the wonders of God showing mercy. And Lord, our God, we pray that you would strengthen and help them in that. We look to you, Lord God, because we find in your word that you are trustworthy and that you delight in showing mercy. We turn to you, Lord God, because we find ourselves in need. And we know that you are our God. You deserve all praise and adoration and glory. So come, almighty King, help us to sing your praises. And we ask that in everything, Jesus Christ would be exalted. Thank you for our time together this morning. 
Have mercy on us, we pray, Lord God. We meet together to call upon your name. We ask, Lord God, that you would feed us from your word, give us strength and encouragement from it. You know what we need, Lord God, and your word is powerful and effective to accomplish it in our lives. Thank you, Holy Father, that as we face trials of many kinds, we turn to your word and we face the living God. And we pray, Holy Father, that as we do so, as we think about how he revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ, may our hearts be lifted up with praise and gladness and joy. Strengthen us, we ask, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. I was uh, scanning back over uh, the messages that I've been privileged to uh, give here throughout uh, 2023 as I was thinking about what we would look at today, uh, and I discovered that I already preached a Christmas message. It was last August. Uh, just in case you don't remember, however, uh, we looked at two passages from Luke's Gospel where Jesus is confronted with tax collectors. You recall Matthew or Levi, the first one in Luke chapter 5, and Zacchaeus, the second one in Luke 19. And the point that we made is that these were mission statements that the Lord Jesus Christ gave in these contexts. When the question would come up, why are you talking to tax collectors and sinners? Uh, this is not right for one who wants to be considered uh, an honored teacher. And he took the opportunity to explain, in the case of Luke 5, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I came on a mission. And that mission was to call sinners to repent. In the case of Luke 19, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Reading through the New Testament, you can uncover many more such mission statements. Uh, perhaps uh, you were able to uh, listen to uh, Focus on the Bible last week, uh, and we gave some of them. Uh, at least I think it was uh, last week. Our recording uh, is out of sequence, and so I can't remember. Uh, but I think it was last week. Uh, and the New Testament cont contains many other mission statements. For example... The Father sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. The Father sent his Son in John 3.17. Why did Jesus come? He explains it this way in John 10. Uh, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And then the verses we're looking at on focus have to do with the word made. Jesus was made something or became something specifically to tackle the needs that we have. John uh, 1.14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And because of that, those who receive uh, him have authority to become children of God. In 2 Corinthians 5, he was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In Galatians, he was made of a woman, made under the law to redeem those who were under the law. In Hebrews 2, he was made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest to bring us to God, and so on. Uh, even that number of, of mission statements is really just scratching the surface. But what they do, if we consider that they are Christmas texts, is that it connects the birth of the Lord Jesus with the rest of the gospel. 
Uh, our danger, of course, and we've often talked about this, our danger is that we begin to take these various stories in the Bible and isolate them. Uh, this week we're looking at the Christmas story. Next week we're looking at, at something else. And we don't always connect them. But as you think about Jesus coming on a mission, it reminds us that Luke 1 and 2 is connected to the rest of Luke's gospel. Uh, there's a connection here. There's a reason why Luke started where he did. The birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is not just the first thing in the Gospels, it's the foundational thing. Who is he? Our Christmas carols summarize it. Jesus, Lord at your birth. He's the Lord, the King of glory. Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Who he is makes all the difference about what he does. And that's why these birth narratives are so vital for us. It is the Word that was made flesh. The Word who was in the beginning with God. The Word who was God. The Word who made everything that is, is made. This is the one of whom we are talking. The one who was equal with God, made himself of no reputation, humbled himself to the death on a cross. It all ties together. So I wanted to return to the theme of the mission of the Lord Jesus. And uh, obviously, if we were doing things in order, we would have started here with the mission beginning in August, but I didn't think of it. Uh, so we're going to uh, give you, uh, what do they call it in the industry, a prequel. Uh, this is what came before uh, what we talked about in August. So that's why I labeled this uh, the mission begins. What are the various ways that Luke answers the question, questions perhaps, why did Jesus come and why does it matter? So thinking about these two chapters, they're very familiar to us, but I wanted to zero in on this theme of the mission. What do we learn in these chapters about the mission of the Lord Jesus? And the first thing I wanted to underline is that the mission is covenantal. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it means that it fulfills the promise of God. Uh, it fits the long-standing plan uh, of God. His covenant is how God and human beings relate. A covenant of redemption is one where God redeems us, brings us together so that we are, are his people. It's a big word in the Bible. In fact, it can also and sometimes is translated testament, which is why we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. So it's really a, a structural term. Uh, and there's two references, uh, I mean more than two individual texts, but two themes that come up, uh, and it's the mention of Abraham and David, key figures in the Old Testament. Now, these are all big words. Abraham and David uh, are, are so important in the scripture. There's so much material on them, and the theme of covenant is huge as well. But the New Testament helps us by zeroing in on, a, on two or three things about Abraham particularly. There, there's many more things that could be said and so on, but, but three things, let's say, that the New Testament zeroes in on that it wants us to think about when we think about Abraham. A couple of times, the Apostle Paul quotes Genesis 15, verse 6, that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. 
and he applies it to a New Testament teaching that we label justification by faith. We are justified by faith. You can look at Romans 3 and 4. It comes up in Galatians uh, 3 as, as well. It means that Abraham believed God. He wasn't saved by his works. It wasn't because Abraham was Abraham that he was saved. It wasn't because Abraham was startlingly good compared to his compatriots that he was, was saved. It was because Abraham received a promise from God and he believed it. And that's what makes us right with God. So Paul points to Abraham as the one who is justified by faith. In Galatians 3, he also underlines a second thing about Abraham. The promise that was given to him included this element, that in him all nations of the earth would be blessed. Through his seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed. So this message that, that fills the Bible is for all of us, even if we weren't genetically and naturally uh, that specific children uh, of Abraham. All nations need to take note of that. That's why we're here this morning. The third element that I wanted you to notice that the New Testament highlights about Abraham is the theme of hope. You remember the incident in Abraham's life where he was to take his son, his only son, his promised son, Isaac, and give him as a sacrifice to God? Remember how the knife or or dagger or whatever he had was poised to strike him? Isaac at that moment was as good as dead. And the New Testament picks up on that. Think about it. Abraham still believed the promise in that setting where he's about to kill the child of promise. He still believed the promise. Why? Because he believed that God could raise the dead. It was a gospel promise. And Abraham believed God. And therefore, we have hope. If you want to see that elaborated a little bit, you can read Romans 4 and Hebrews 11. That theme comes up. So at least three things stand out about the covenant with Abraham that the New Testament wants us always to keep in mind. We are justified by faith. We, uh, that this is a message for all of us, all nations, and the resurrection hope is what gives it power and consistency, that staying power. Why does this matter? Well, the issue, of course, in Luke 1 and 2 is whether or not there is any hope. And there is hope. Uh, This theme of hope is important because we are familiar with despair. Think about Noah's day, for example, a character that Peter refers to in 2 Peter 3. The despair is there because human hearts were only evil continually. In Moses' day, the people of God, the people of promise are under oppression, uh, under the Pharaoh, and, and this is an insurmountable obstacle to faith and hope. Many give up. They imagine that God either doesn't know our situation, doesn't care about our situation, or can't do anything about our situation. And so they stop believing in God. They start mulling over the thought, are the Egyptian gods really the true ones? Second Peter reflects on this in connection with Noah. Many scoff at the faith. Many mock it. They, they think that it's pointless because God has never done anything. 
What has ever God done in this world? Everything runs just like it has from creation. Uh, Cause and effect. That's everything that we need to know about this creation. But Peter points out, we should be very afraid if that's how we think. Because it's flat out wrong. God has acted. And he particularly points to Noah and the flood. Not only has God acted, but he acted in judgment. And this world is reserved unto judgment still. Be very afraid if we think that God can be ignored. On the other hand, what happened when they were under oppression under the Pharaoh? When they were despairing that God knew about their situation, that he would act? Well, he did act. He acted in salvation through Moses. He remembered his covenant with Abraham. You see, that's the glory of the the reference to Abraham in Luke 1 and 2 that you saw in these uh, these songs that I read to you uh, earlier, the song of Mary and the song of Zacharias. Why do they point to Abraham? Because hope stands because God remembered his covenant. That's the grounds of hope. God acted. God is at work. And then there's David before we leave this and the word of promise. Uh, He's mentioned, uh, uh, well, a few times besides what I I read to you, uh, in uh, chapter 1 of Luke's gospel in verses 32 and 33. uh, He shall be great. This is the message of the angel to Mary. He shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest. The Lord God shall give him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Or the angel to the shepherds. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior, which is Christ the Lord. Uh, Have you read or remembered Psalm 89? I always recognize Psalm 89, well, at least verses 1 and 2, because we used to sing it. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Uh, With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. Remember that, singing that? Uh, a, A great piece. What I didn't know at the time is that that upbeat tone on which the psalm begins is not the tone on which it ends. What Psalm 89 does after the opening verse that I knew so well is it begins to look at the promise to David, how his his throne would last forever, his son would reign on the throne forever. And and it it goes over 2 Samuel 7, which is where the the promise is, and and talks about how even if David's descendants sin, you will still have mercy on them and you will not take the kingdom away from them. And it goes on like that for several verses until you get to verse 38. And then you have the word, but. But what? You have cast off and abhorred. You have been wroth, angry with your anointed. Anointed is the word Messiah. You've cut them off. This is written post-captivity. There's no king on the throne. There's no throne. They're being ruled from another country. And the question of Psalm 89 is what happened? Why? And when will it change? 
when will you keep your promise? And you know what? It's one of those psalms, there's more than one, not very many, but it's one of those psalms that never resolves it. It ends the psalm on that note. What are you going to do about this? There's no answer. And the reason there's no answer is that there was no answer until, until Luke, until that angel appeared to that virgin, that confused, probably teenager, and said, he shall be great, and he will sit on the throne of his father, David, forever. God keeps his promise. Many hundreds of years later. But there's an answer to the question, will God in his wrath remember mercy? So this is covenantal. God keeping his covenant promise. God doing what he said he would do. The promise to Abraham that in him and his seed all nations of the earth would be blessed. The promise to David that his son would reign on the throne forever. It's true. It's true. God keeps his word. And we can be confident in his promises. This is to say that this is God's plan. It's the work of the triune God here. It's God's plan, this birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not because we thought it was a good idea. It's not because we were asking God for salvation. Romans 1, at the end of Romans 1, we were committed sinners. And we encouraged other people to sin. And we were happy in our sinfulness and in our darkness. But God who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, has made us alive with Christ. By grace you are saved. By underlining that Jesus' mission is covenantal, we are saying that it's God's work. Mary asks the question, how can this be? I'm not married. I don't know a man. The Holy Spirit. The Spirit is involved in this. It's impossible, she would say. The angel says, you're wrong. Nothing is impossible with God. Jesus willingly takes on this mission. Remember the 12-year-old boy in the temple? How come you didn't know where to find me? Didn't you know I would be about my father's business? The triune God, the Father planning, the Spirit accomplishing, the Son willingly doing. Don't be so foolish as to think like the scoffers that God is unaware or uninvolved. He's been working all along. And so the message in Luke's Gospel, God has remembered and visited us. Now, to say that God has visited us, well, it can be good, but for God to visit you can also be very, very bad in Scripture. God visits in judgment. God comes in wrath. So the question is, okay, God is coming to us, but how is he coming to us? So Jesus' mission is not only covenantal, 
Luke 1 and 2 wants us to see that Jesus' mission is compassionate. Why does He come? Luke 1, 68 tells us that He has come to show mercy. He is the God who redeems His people. Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed His people. One of the key words, if you read through Luke 1 and 2, is the word mercy. God's loving kindness. It often ties in uh, with uh, God's covenant promise. He's the merciful God. He stands behind it in faithfulness. He delights in mercy that redeems. Or again, as we sing at Christmas time, born to set his people free. The good news of great joy is that God remembers his covenant mercy. He's fully aware of the situation. Rome dominates their lives. There's another superpower after Egypt and Babylon and Assyria and the Persians and so on. Here's another superpower that seems to dominate the world, seems to be completely in control, seems to be destined to convince us that God has lost control. It's not true. God is still very much working out His purposes and His plans. He keeps His promises, and His promises are good for us. You see, as this is written, Rome may dominate their lives, but Rome isn't their main problem. You see, their main problem is their separation from God. It's not the government. It's us. The story is told of G.K. Chesterton, I think it was, where the London Times or some such paper put out a question and invited people to send in their answers. And the question was, what's wrong with the world? He sent in a two-word answer. Dear sir, I am. That's what we need to understand. Now, in our Sunday school lesson downstairs, Kirk pointed out that Romans 1 was not the first choice for a Christmas text. Um, and I, I get his point, and I didn't choose it, so I guess his point is valid. Uh, but on the other hand, it kind of is. Because the problem is the depth of our sinfulness. The problem is we don't want to retain God in our knowledge. We suppress the truth. But God loves to show mercy. So Zacharias, as he praised God for the birth of John the Baptist and talked about his coming mission, his purpose was going to be to prepare the way for the Lord to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God whereby the day spring from on high has visited us to give light. Isn't that an astounding, glorious statement? To give the knowledge of salvation by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby light has come into the darkness. There's a four-point Christmas sermon, isn't it? Isn't that glorious? God delights to show mercy. What does the word remit or remission mean? Well, it means essentially forgiveness, but it adds a slight commercial overtone to it. Uh, do you guys remember back in the day when you paid bills by mail? 
You'd write a check and you'd send it in by mail. And often on the statement you would get, you'd get a statement, paper, like come in your mailbox. And, and, and at the bottom of the statement was usually a perforation or a dotted line. And on that bottom portion it said, please remit with your, your payment. Send in this little piece. As you pay the bill, send this in. To remit is to pay in full. Compassion has to address the central problem of the wrath of God. The wrath of God must be turned aside. That's what Romans is saying. What Luke 1 and 2 is saying is that God did this through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in bondage to sin and because of that to death and all the terrors that go with it. We need to be free. We need to be given hope. We, we cannot stop sinning. We need to be made alive. And God, who delights in mercy, promises to cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Remember that in Micah 7? What a glorious way to end his prophecy. This will be a key thought in Luke, throughout the whole gospel, and into the book of Acts. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Forgiven. Right with God. Washed clean. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all iniquity. Now, I need to pause just for a moment and warn us, because this good news is often badly distorted. There are many who believe that God is not good. For God to act in justice and judgment proves that. Of course, it proves nothing of the kind. God judges sin because he is good. But when we are enemies of God, it distorts our thinking. But there's another mistake, error, distortion. And that is that we distort God's compassion and tender mercy into license. Since God delights in showing mercy, I'll give him more to show mercy about. Since God is going to pay my debts, I'll make more debts. Human minds are strange things. But Paul addresses that. It's not unique to us. Isn't that exactly the problem in Romans 6? The end of Romans 5, he talks about how where great sin abounded, grace did much more abound, and then he has to deal with the question, so should we sin that grace may abound? Horrors! No, of course not. God forbid. It must never be. Yet, when we understand that sin is deadly and vile, then we understand the astounding grace that is such that we are forgiven. And then we understand why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You see, forgiveness means paid in full. Which leads to our third point. Jesus' mission is costly. We've talked about fulfillment. God keeps his promises. About compassion, God keeps his promises because he loves us. But if you are going to be forgiven, somebody pays the price. If you owed me $1,000 and you said to me, I know I said I would pay it by this week, but I just can't. And I said, you know what? It's Christmas. I forgive you. Don't bother paying me back the thousand bucks. I'd 
the undercurrent is don't come in January and ask me for another thousand, but that's, that's beside the point. But the thing is, if I forgive you the thousand bucks, it means you don't have to pay it. Who pays it? Well, I did. I'm out the thousand dollars, right? Jesus' mission is costly. It costs something for God to pay our sin debts. You see, the means of redemption and remission in the scripture is always the blood of sacrifice. Remember Hebrews? All things under the law are forgiven by blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The promised covenant is fulfilled exclusively in Jesus. It's not in our heritage. It's not in our law keeping. They've long since proven inadequate. Only the shed blood of a God-given sacrifice can save. The Father sent the Son into the world that by Him the world might be saved. That's the point in Luke 1 and 2. We need a Passover lamb like they needed at the Exodus. Blood that could be painted on the door frames of our house so that the due and just judgment on our sin didn't come. You see, forgiveness may be free, but it's never been cheap. That it's free for those who come to him does not mean that there was no cost. Do you remember quotes in Matthew from Jeremiah? Rachel weeping for her children for they were not. There's a shadow over Christmas, isn't there? Do you remember when the baby Jesus is taken to the temple according to the law and Simeon meets them there? Mine eyes have seen your salvation. He also says to Mary, a sword shall pierce through your soul. There's a shadow here, a sword piercing Mary's heart. And automatically, if you've read to the end of the book and started over again, you immediately know what he means. He's talking about the cross. Even here in Bethlehem and in Jerusalem, the eight days old this baby is, and already the shadow of the cross is hanging over him. There's this good tidings of great joy as was announced to the shepherd, but there's another shoe to drop for that. This book that begins on this note of triumphant joy, of remembered covenants and tender mercies, is going to move steadily to the cross. They're going to plot against Jesus. They're going to try to kill him. It'll happen more than once. They won't listen to him. They'll mock him. Crowds will desert him. And ultimately, he begins this ominous journey to Jerusalem. In Luke's gospel, it starts as early as chapter 9. Despised by the Samaritans, rejected by his own, moving towards the cross. Jesus' mission is covenantal. God is keeping his promise and he doesn't lie. And Jesus' mission is compassionate because he knows the despair and the hopelessness that comes because of our sin and that we can't fix it ourselves. And it's costly because he does it through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But even that isn't the final word, is it? Jesus' mission is complete. Paid in full. It is finished. 
Luke gives us an illustration of this, just a a little snapshot of something that happened during these uh, days of Jesus' birth that underlines the big point of fulfillment. You remember the angels visiting the shepherd, telling them uh, what has happened? It was not a reason to be afraid, but to rejoice. What did the shepherds say? Do you remember? Let's go see. Look at what we've just been told. This is astounding. Let's go see for ourselves. See what? This thing which has come to pass. Fulfillment, right? This thing has come to pass. They go. What do they find? Well, the way Luke reports it is, everything was just as it was told them. That's a big lesson in Luke. Zacchaeus gets a promise about the birth of John the Baptist. And he doesn't believe it. Can't be. And so he said, he's told, well, you're not going to be able to speak for nine months then, and we'll see what can and can't be. Mary struggles with this. How can this be? And then you got these shepherds up on the hill, and they get a word from an angel, and they say, let's go. <laughs> and they find it exactly like they were told. Luke's trying to get us to believe what God says. When God says it, it's true. Maybe the promise is 2,000 years old. Maybe it's 1,000 years old. But it's true. And it is finished. Luke, again, has an interesting structural way, we might say, to make this clear. Near the beginning of his gospel, chapter 2, verse 10 particularly, the angel appears to the shepherds, and Luke writes this down, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Good tidings of great joy. And then there's all the stuff in between. And much of it doesn't seem very joyful especially, as I said earlier, as we draw nearer and nearer to the cross. But he records it all. And the great climax at the end of Luke's gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what's the theme? Jesus comes to his disciples and said, why didn't you believe the scripture? This is exactly what was written. He begins with the law, the prophets, and the writings. He shows them everything about himself in the scripture. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. The 24th chapter of Luke picks up all of these themes from the first two chapters of Luke and says, look at it, the mission is complete. What was said was going to be done has been done. It's finished, it's done. And do you notice how he ends the gospel? It came to pass, while Jesus was blessing them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. He began the book with good news of great joy. All of the details in between, some were happy, some were not so. But he gets to the end, and they're waiting for Pentecost. 
with great joy. Mission accomplished. Luke 1 and 2 shows us the mission begins. A mission long promised, covenantal. A mission for our good, compassionate. A mission that was costly to the Father and His Son. And a mission that is complete. They continued in the temple praising and blessing God just like the shepherds went away praising God for what they had seen and heard. What's your response? Do we see in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ the glory of this mission for us? Loaded with sin, oppressed by its consequences, we learn that Jesus Christ was born to set his people free. Good news of great joy for all. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, its power and its saving ability. And thank you, Lord God, that you have not forgotten us. Thank you for your tender mercy from on high. O Lord, our God, guide us by your grace. For Jesus' name's sake, amen.